محمدًا رسول الله ويقيدي أدنو إليه ساجدًا بجبيني اقبل صلاتي وللصواب بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ما بعد after our uh, pause and break for a few weeks we're now resuming our seerah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and we begin with a brief recap because in this recap we will inshallah refresh our memories and move on to the next step which is the conquest of Mecca. We are now in the eighth year of the hijrah and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam is 61 years old now. He's 61 years old. Mashallah, we have covered the entire seerah up until this stage and uh, our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam is now nearing the pinnacle really of uh, his career and that is the conquest of Mecca. Uh, of course in Mecca for 40 years he has lived amongst his own people. For 40 years we talked about how they respected him, how they loved him more than anyone else in their community and every single indication was that he would become the next leader or at least if not the leader then amongst the elite and amongst the uh, noblemen. But when our Prophet began preaching a new belief system other than their own and he began preaching equality amongst all people and he began preaching in the worship of Allah, they became his worst enemies. They rejected him merely because of a new belief system and they fabricated against him lies that they knew were lies. They accused him of being mad. They accused him of being crazy. They accused him of being a magician. They accused him of being a fanciful poet. Now it's very interesting here. They never accused him of being power hungry. Nor did they accuse him of being insincere. Because even though they could accuse him of being crazy, they could not accuse him of wanting power. And even in this we notice the fact how sincere he was. That nobody accused him of being insincere. Nobody said you want this for money, for power, for greed. They made ridiculous accusations. He must have gone crazy was the main one. Because that's the only explanation they could give to what he was uh, saying. And because they could not harm him personally, after all he was the grandson of Abdul Muttalib and every single law that they had protected the one of blood. This was their culture, this was their mannerisms. Whoever's blood is holy, whoever's blood is not holy, but you know, uh, noble. Noble blood has to be protected. And nobody could possibly harm a hair on his head physically because of the, the fact he is the son of Abdullah, the grandson of Abdul Muttalib, the elite of the Banu Hashim. So they took out their anger on the weak. They killed so many of the early Muslims, Sumayya and Yasir. They persecuted Bilal. Eventually when they couldn't harm him physically, they boycotted. And they said, we're not going to sell you anything, which means even food and water. How can you live when nobody's going to sell you food and water? How can you live when nobody's going to sell you clothes? So what did our Prophet do? And Abu Talib was with them in this regard. Out of anger and out of disgust, they left Mecca. And they self imposed exile onto themselves. Eventually this also led to the emigration to Abyssinia. Their hatred, their filthy tactics uh, continued to increase until finally they began to physically harm our Prophet ﷺ, either through altercations or trying to choke him in public as they did or throwing an animal carcass onto him. Uh, and in the very final years when Abu Talib died, Abu Lahab went to an even lower level and uh, initially he would follow him around everywhere and uh, Anytime he spoke to a gathering, anytime he gave a lecture Abu, uh, to the uh, tribes, the hujjaj that had come, Abu Lahab would call out from behind. And Abu Lahab would say, don't listen to him, he is my nephew. And I can vouch that he is gone senile, he is crazy, he is a poet, he is this, he is that. And wallahi, imagine the scenario, how painful it must be. Somebody is literally waiting outside your house, he's your uncle. And he's waiting to follow you wherever you go. Imagine how much hurt our Prophet ﷺ would have been until finally when Abu Lahab got so irritated he withdrew his protection. And he basically said, you are no longer a part of the clan. And he disowned the Banu Hashim. He disowned somebody of the Banu Hashim. And he said, I'm not going to help you out. And this was when he went to Ta'if he, to try to get protection from uh, the tribe of Thaqif. He was rejected from Ta'if as we know. And then when he came back, nobody could offer him support until finally Mutam ibn Adi was the one who uh, gave him 
that support until eventually in the very last year when push came to shove the Quraysh finally decided to do the unthinkable after 13 years of preaching they decided to finally do the unthinkable and that is to kill him and this was unheard of in the Arab tribes that they would gather together to assassinate one of their own this went against every law that all the Arabs held sacred especially in the Haram and by the Quraysh and from the Banu Hashim, like all of these sins made it even bigger. And they all agreed to commit this vile deed. And that was when, as we know, the hijrah occurred of our Prophet wasallam, And he left the land of his birth and the land of his ancestors and the land of his people. In fact, the land of his great-great-great-grandfathers, Ismail and Ibrahim, who had immigrated there with Hajar. And he said to Mecca, uh, he said, he spoke to the city and he said, You are the most beloved of all cities to me. And were it not for the fact that my people have expelled me from you I would never have left you this is how he felt about Mecca and even in Medina the Quraysh did not leave him alone even in Medina they continued their persecution and in Medina a number of battles took place and we went over all of these battles uh, in great detail and the first and really the biggest of them and this battle truly was the biggest victory after the conquest of Mecca uh, and that is the Battle of Badr. The Battle of Badr is really the biggest victory in the whole Islamic era, uh, the Sira era except for the, the conquest itself that in the Battle of Badr Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala truly demonstrated uh, the uh, the truthfulness of our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and in it each and every senior leader who participated from the Quraysh were decimated and killed or taken prisoner of war and truly this was a huge victory the Quraysh never recovered from Badr the Quraysh never fully recovered from the loss of Badr their stalwarts their 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 noble skions if you like Utba ibn Rabi'ah Shayba ibn Rabi'ah Umayyah ibn Khalaf Abu Jahal himself Al-As all of these major figures every one of them died it was a blow that in fact if you look at it the Quraysh never truly recovered from it in Uhud the Quraysh realized that even if they sent their entire city to Medina, it would not eliminate Islam. Because never had the Quraysh fought unified in a battle until Uhud. So all of the Quraysh send their sons, they send their army, and they realize that no, Medina is still protected. In the battle of Khandaq, they realized if they send the entire Arabia, still Allah will protect Medina. Because in Khandaq, what happened, as we said, was something that had never happened in the history of, of, of the Arabs. And that is, they unified different tribes on the basis of theology, not on the basis of tribalism. For the first time, the pagans united with other pagans and they forgot all of their past wars. They forgot all of their previous issues and they united merely to fight against Tawheed and to fight against Islam. And they sent an army the likes of which the Muslims could never fight. No, no matter how much they had, they couldn't fight all of Arabia. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, protected them and Finally, after being so demoralized, they were forced to acknowledge the superiority of the Muslims in the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, even though they tried to save face by stalling the Umrah for one year. But the reality was the Treaty of Hudaybiyah acknowledged that now the Muslims are a dominant force and we have to agree to conditions with them. And each and every one of those conditions, as we said, flipped against them in the long run. And of course, the main condition of peace, it worked against the Quraysh. The very fact that they had to ask and sue for peace and uh, it worked against them, it shows the superiority of the Muslims that in that time frame, the, the two years of peace, so much good happened on the political front, on the moral front, on the number of converts front, so much good happened that really it's just uh, the beginning of the end uh, and the end of the Quraysh is in sight. When the Muslims finally have that peace that they needed from the Quraysh, what they did was they eliminated all other threats. They eliminated all other threats. And the most significant threat in Central Arabia was the Khaybarites. The most significant threat in Central Arabia, the largest unified power uh, that had weapons and money were the people of Khaybar. They didn't have the most quantity. The most quantity were in other tribes. But they had what 
the Arab tribes did not have. They had fortresses, and the Arabs did not have fortresses. And they had money, and money can buy you power. And so the largest, not the largest, sorry, the most uh, well-fortified encampment, and the wealthiest power that could oppose the Muslims were the people of Khaybar. So after the Treaty of Hudaybiyyah, Immediately, within a month or two, the Prophet ﷺ sets his eyes on Khaybar. So again, all of this, it is as if Mecca is the prize and everything is happening to get to the prize. From the Battle of Badr onwards, everything is being done to eventually get to uh, Mecca. Of course, I forgot to mention that even symbolically, as soon as the Hijrah occurs, symbolically, the Qibla is changed back to Mecca. That your back has turned to Mecca. When you had to leave, but now you will face Mecca five times a day, in fact more than five times a day to pray. So even the symbolism within the first year, that the, the, the Qibla was not changed in Mecca itself. But after the Hijrah, the Qibla is changed. There's a clear symbolism here that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, قَدْ نَرَى تَقُلُّبَ وَجْهِكَ فِي السَّمَاءِ فَلَنُوَلِّيَنَّكَ قِبْلَةً تَرْضَاهَا فَوَلِّ وَجْهَكَ Turn your face towards Masjid al-Haram. You had to turn your back to leave it, but turn your face to Masjid al-Haram. And we said this is a sim symbolism here that you will eventually get uh, Mecca back. Uh, as we had said in the Treaty of Hudaybiyyah, so in this peace treaty, the Muslims realized, or the Prophet in particular, need to realize, realized that he needed to eliminate all other threats. So the eyes were set on Khaybar. And with the elimination of Khaybar, not only was the only serious threat in the Hijaz eliminated, but the Muslims acquired more wealth than they had ever acquired in their lives. And they acquired all the weaponry of Khaybar, because one of the conditions of Khaybar was, give us all your weapons. All of the weapons of the people of Khaybar came into the hands of the Muslims. And weapons are difficult to obtain in those days. Weapons are not easy. And the people of Khaybar had very good weapons because obviously they have the money to purchase them. And not only did they get weapons, they also got constant income. How did they get constant income from Khaybar? The crops, right? Without having to lift a finger, right? As Ibn Umar said, we never... Yani, uh, ate to our fill basically until after Khaybar. Right? We were always hungry, meaning it's a metaphor here, like we're always suffering from poverty until Khaybar. So with Khaybar comes financial stability, financial security. With Khaybar comes weapons. With Khaybar comes the final elimination of a threat uh, internally in Arabia. And with the loss of Khaybar, this is the final demoralization for the Quraysh. There is no other power now. They've tried Badr, they've tried Uhud, they've tried all of Arabia, at least the pagan side. The only hope that might might have been left were the Yehud of Khaybar. And they too have been eliminated. Who then is going to fight? Who then will do anything? So you can imagine the demoralization. Imagine being in Mecca at the time. The city must have been at least two-thirds empty by now. Imagine, houses would now be empty. The Sanadid or the, the noblemen of Quraysh are now gone one after the other. More than half the people have converted and gone to Medina. Even the city is now somewhat empty. Can you imagine how the Quraysh will be feeling now? Seeing the process and rise in power more and more. One victory after another. And again, it is as if the entire seerah is leading up to the events of the uh, conquest of Mecca. And so, after Khaybar, we talked about in the last few lessons that we, before we took our break, we talked about the Battle of Mu'ta. And the Battle of Mu'ta, the Battle of Mu'ta, it was not, as we said, uh, a, a victory in the military sense. It wasn't a pure win in the military sense. However, it was a victory in another sense. Not only because the Prophet said it was a victory, but most importantly, it was a sense of morale boost to the Muslims that they took on the mightiest superpower in the world. And that's the Roman Empire. Because this is the only time, we said so many times, the only time the Muslims fought the Romans in the life of the Prophet was Mu'tah. It never occurred after this. And they didn't win. But they definitely did not lose. And the fact that over 95% of the army can come back intact, untouched, this was a huge victory. They stood up to the mightiest superpower and 
they came back pretty much unscathed. Yes, some major losses. Ja'far died, Ibn Rawaha died, right? Zayd died. Yes, all the major losses, big losses. But the bulk of the army came back. And what do you think now the morale? There is a message being sent. Send us the Romans. We'll even take them on. You can't even harm us. And that is why our Prophet said that this is a fatah, this is a victory, even though it wasn't the military victory, it was a morale victory. It was a victory in PR. It was a victory that the Arabs had never fought the Romans. There is no fight. You know, all of us know in our legendary, you know, knowledge that we have of the, the Roman sentrymen and the Roman armor and the Roman tactics. And all of this is true. Why were the Romans the superpowers? Because they had the better everything. The better men, the stronger men, the better equipment, the better horses, the better tactics, the better generals. The Arabs didn't fight the Romans. The Arabs were subservient to the Romans. They didn't ever take on the Romans and fight. Well, guess what? The pagans didn't take on the Romans and fight. The Muslims did. And the Muslims came out the victors. In the sense, as we explained, what do we mean by this? That the Romans were not able to harm them. And they came back 95% or more than 95% unscathed. And so, what do you think the morale would have been amongst the Quraysh now? That even the Romans were not able to eliminate. And all of this is a PR campaign that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is blessing uh, the Muslims with. Because indeed, yani more than half the battle is perception. More than half the battle is perception. It is the morale on your side and the demoralization on the other side. And that is why our Prophet ﷺ, when the people criticized the, the, the returners from battle of Mu'tah, and they said, you are deserters, you are farrarun, you are deserters. Our Prophet ﷺ, what did he say? No, they are not farrarun, they are karrarun. They will go back and fight again. And of the first fights they did was the conquest of Mecca. It is as if they came back from Mu'tah and the Prophet is saying, no, they haven't run away. They have a bigger and more important battle to fight. And that will be the uh, conquest of Mecca. And this, as we said, the main, uh, or one of the main points of Mu'tah we can say, one of the main points of Mu'tah was the PR victory for the Muslims, that truly the Muslims are now taking on a superpower. And they're coming out somewhat the victors. They are not being harmed when they take on the superpower. In addition to all of these political victories, the Muslims in the last two years have won on the moral front and on the quantity front. As we said, more people embraced Islam in these two years than had embraced Islam since the beginning of the da'wah. 20 years or 18 years versus two years. More people embraced Islam in these two years of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah because the Treaty of Hudaybiyah was only active for two years before the conquest of Mecca. Literally two years. More people embraced Islam than had embraced Islam in basically the previous uh, you know, 10 years or so. And this clearly demonstrates again uh, that the spreading of Islam primarily was not done through the sword. It was done through interaction and through people mixing with the Muslims. So... The purpose of summarizing all of this, it is as if every single episode of the seerah is leading up to the climax. And there is no doubt, wallahi, that the climax of the seerah is the conquest of Mecca. Everything after the conquest is just footnotes, really. Everything after the conquest, okay, the battle of Tabuk and Hunayn, and it's just basically, you know, finishing off, basically. But the ultimate, if you like, climax of the seerah is the return of the Prophet to Mecca, coming back to the very city that expelled him out. And it was really the final domino to fall once Mecca is in the hands of the Muslims. And they already have Central Arabia and they already have Northern Arabia. Khalas, the peripheries must fall. Because really this is, they have the bulk of the country. They have the bulk of the land of the Arabs. What is left? The small peripheries, Oman and Bahrain and Qatar and Yemen, these are small principalities. And they are not centers. They are not leaders of civilization. They are, not, they are following the center. And if they have, the Muslims have the center, the rest is going to simply fall. And that is exactly what happened. So the conquest of Mecca truly is the climax of the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ. And 
the rest of the incidents that occurred after are like footnotes to the uh, ending of this climax. And before we actually begin the incidents of the conquest, and because we're giving such a thorough uh, Sira class, uh, we have to mention just one or two incidents that occurred in the few months between the Battle of Mu'tah and the month of Ramadan of the 8th year of the Hijrah where the conquest of Mecca began. And we began with uh, a ghazwa. And like all of these small uh, ghazawat or these sariyas, like all of these small expeditions, what is really beneficial for us who are beginners of this uh, uh, seerah is not the political side of the battle, but the incidents that occurred in these battles and the benefits we can derive from them. If you notice, when we mention the smaller battles, it's not about the politics of which tribe did they conquer and what, but rather small things happen in the in the in this. Um, in the battle, and these small stories have moral benefits for us, or they have theological benefits, or they have fiqh benefits for us. So, we begin with uh, the most significant of these minor battles, none of these are major, and that is called the Ghazwa of Dhatus Salasil, the Ghazwa of Dhatus Salasil. And the Ghazwa of Dhatus Salasil, uh, for the advanced students of history, should not be confused for the other battle which is called the Battle of Dhatus Salasil, which, which was the downfall of the Roman Empire. Uh, sorry, the Persian Empire, excuse me. That's, that's called the Battle of Dhatus Salasil, or two battles. One in the Seerah, and one in the reign of Umar ibn al-Khattab. So don't get confused. Some people get confused with this. They're both called Dhatus Salasil, but for different reasons. And this one is called Ghazwa, uh, or Sariya, because it took place in the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And... Uh, the other one is called the, just the battle of Dhatus Salas, and there's no Ghazwa or Sariya there. Um, and the, the battle of Dhatus Salas, which is in the time of Umar, was the battle that was the downfall of Yazdajard, of the Sassanid Empire. Khalid ibn al-Walid on, on one side, and Rustum and Yazdajard on the other side. And that was the end of the Sassanid Empire. And that's why it's so important, but that's beyond the scope of the seerah. And that's not going to confuse with that. For us, we're interested in what happened in the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ. And the reason why the names are the same uh, is for two different reasons. There's no similarity. This ghazwa is called ghazwa to that is salasil because there's a pond called salasil. And it took place close to the pond. Right? Salasil was the name of the pond. The other battle, which is the battle that took place in the reign of Umar ibn Khattab, it is called Salasil because the prisoners were all tied up in chains. And Salasil means chains. And the Muslims had so many prisoners, so they called them the, the Ghazwa of basically lots of prisoners. That was Salasil. So there are two different reasons why it is called That was Salasil. In any case, I'm just saying this because if you hear That was Salasil, usually it's about the battle and not the Sariyah. Because the Sariyah is relatively small. So don't get confused like, oh, I studied the Dhatu Salasil. No, you studied the Sariya, not the famous battle of Dhatu Salasil that took place in Umar ibn Khattab's time. So what is the, the, the Sariya that we're interested in? It took place a few weeks after Mu'tah. A few weeks after Mu'tah. And therefore, it would be around Jumad al-Ula or Jumad al-Thani of the eighth year of the Hijrah. Jumad al-Ula or Jumad al-Thani of the eighth year of the Hijrah. And it was against one of the relatively large tribes uh, that was up north and that was the tribe of Qudaa. Now, the tribe of Qudaa was not as north as the tribe of Ghassan. Who is the tribe of Ghassan? Who can remind me? The what? The Christian Arabs up north, the allies of the Romans, and this is one of the furthest tribes up north. This is one of the furthest tribes up north. In fact, they're territory is almost touching modern Jordan basically, way up there. So this is way up north. And that, that tribe was the tribe that the Prophet attacked in Mu'tah. Okay, that was the tribe of Mu'tah. In the Mu'tah he wanted to attack the Ghassanids. The tribe of Qudaa was not that much north. It was between uh, Ghassan and Medina. And also it was uh, northeast as well. Not full north, a little bit northeast. And so it's not that far away compared to Ghassan. And the tribe of Qudaa had aided the Ghassanids in the Battle of Mu'tah. They had helped the Ghassanids in the Battle of Mu'tah, and therefore this was a uh, response to that aiding. This was a response to that aid, and the Prophet ﷺ called Amr ibn al-As uh, to him. Amr ibn al-As narrates the story in the first person, and he says, The Prophet ﷺ called for me and commanded me to wear my garments and my armor. 
and come to him. So I did that, and when I came to him, he was doing wudu. He looked at me up and down, Sa'ad al-Nadir. He looked at me up and down, trying to assess me basically. And then he said, I wish to appoint you a leader of an army. I wish to appoint you as a leader of the army, and Allah will protect you and give you much ghanima. Allah will protect you and give you much ghanima. And I am optimistic for you that you will get much wealth. So Amr ibn al-As says, Ya Rasulullah, O Messenger of Allah, I did not accept Islam in order to become wealthy. Rather, I accepted Islam to be a Muslim, in other words, for the sake of Islam, and to be with you, Ya Rasulullah. So Amr ibn al-As says, I didn't accept Islam to be wealthy. Now, what is the point here? So we see here, Amr ibn al-As, it is as if he feels a little bit hurt. That, Ya Rasulullah, you're offering me money. Now, remember, when did Amr accept Islam? He just accepted Islam right now. He's a brand new Muslim, barely two months, three months old. Literally brand new Muslim. And remember, Amr ibn al-As is from one of the nobility of the Quraysh. His father al-As, so many verses of the Quran against his father al-As. Al-As ibn Wa'il. Uh, and he has died, As has died. So Amr is of noble birth. And he has been raised very luxuriously. And Allah blessed him to be the last convert before the conquest of Mecca, of the last three batches, right? The last three Sahaba, Khalid ibn al-Walid, Uthman ibn Talha, and Amr ibn al-As. They three all converted, the very last converts. So this is Amr. And Amr is a brand new Muslim. So the Prophet tells him, I want to send you on expedition, and I'm optimistic you'll get a lot of money on it. So he feels a bit like maybe insulted or hurt. Ya Rasulullah, I didn't accept Islam for, for money. Basically, you think I came here for money. I accepted Islam because I want to be a Muslim. And I want to be close to you, Ya Rasulullah. And this shows us, obviously, his ikhlas to Allah. And it shows us his love for the Prophet He's a genuine Muslim. And by the way, Amr ibn al-As is the one that, uh, he was the one who, he said that, uh, I, the way that the Prophet would look at me, I, I, I would think that I am the most beloved to him. So I went and I asked him, Ya Rasulullah, who is the most beloved person to you? So he said, Aisha. So then I said, no, no, I meant amongst men. So he said, her father. Then he said, I kept on asking, and he kept on mentioning, and my name was not on the list, in that list. So I stopped asking, fearing that my name might never come. Right. So uh, the point here is that, Amr being one of the last converts, yet because of the nature of the Prophet Amr felt the most beloved. Because it was the nature of the Prophet to make everybody feel so much love coming from him. And yet Amr was not on the elite list of the first ten or so, the first five or so, so he just let it be and didn't ask anymore. This is Amr ibn al-As. And we see his ikhlas over here. And by the way, we have to mention this, subhanAllah. Amr ibn al-As, later on he got involved in the political turmoil, and on the side of Ali, he did this, on the side of Muawiyah, he did that. You know, in the fitan, he has a role to play. And because of this, some of the other sects and some modern historians, they kind of give him a bad rap. And they say this and they say that about him. But of course, we have said many, many times throughout the Sira lectures, it is a point of theology for us to respect the Sahaba. And especially somebody like Amr, who is showing how much he loves Allah and his messenger. And we say whatever Amr did later on in his life, he was sincere in his ijtihad. And Allah Azza wa Jal will reward him for what he was right in and forgive him for what he was wrong in. And we don't say anything bad about any of the Sahaba, especially one who converted before the conquest. And Allah says in the Quran, لا يستوي منكم من أنفق من قبل الفتح وقاتل أولئك أعظم درجة من الذين أنفقوا بعد وقاتلوا They are not the same, those who embraced Islam before the conquest and those who fought before the conquest. These people are higher in the eyes of Allah than those who accepted after. And Amr accepted Islam and fought before the conquest. Now the Prophet is sending him on a fighting expedition. So by the testimony of the Quran, people like Amr ibn al-As are at a higher level than those who converted after the uh, conquest. And therefore, here we have 
this ikhlas coming from him. Ya Rasulullah, I didn't accept Islam in order to be rich. I accepted Islam because I wanted to be Muslim and I love you. I wanted to be with you. So our Prophet said, Ya Amr, Ni'mal malu salih lirrajul salih. And this is a very beautiful phrase that should give us comfort when we go about earning our sustenance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Prophet told him, Ya Amr, Ni'mal malu salih lirrajul salih. O Amr, how beautiful is pure money for the righteous man. How beautiful or how good. Ni'ma means how good it is. How beautiful is pure money for a righteous man. And this hadith shows us that for the one who will use the money in a good manner, there is nothing wrong to be eager for money itself. In other words, when Amr felt insulted, the Prophet corrected his misunderstanding. And he said, Oh Amr, there's nothing wrong with wanting money and with having money as long as the man is righteous and the money is pure. So he gave two conditions. Al-mal al-salih. So you cannot get haram money. And al-rajul al-salih. So the man has to be good as well. And therefore from this hadith, we derive that having money, earning money, wanting money, in and of itself is not wrong as long as the money that you acquire is pure and that you feel you will use it to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And in fact, how true it is that people of wealth can accomplish so much that people that don't have wealth cannot do. People of wealth can help in manners that the people without wealth cannot do. And, and no doubt money is one of the biggest tests that Allah has left us with. As our Prophet said, the test that Allah has given to my ummah is the test of money. Fitnatu ummati al-mal. But the test can be passed with flying colors and you can fail miserably. The believer is not somebody who shies away from the test. He asks Allah to make him pass the test. The believer is not somebody who says, I don't want, I don't want money. No, oh Allah, grant me righteous money and allow me to spend it in a good manner. This is the dua we should make. Oh Allah, Allahumma asaluka rizqan wasi'an halalan tayyiba. I want rizq wasi'. I want a lot of rizq that is halal, that is pure, and that I spend for your sake. And here our Prophet is telling Amr, there's nothing wrong with wanting money as long as you are righteous. So Amr uh, uh, was given 300 men, and he was told to basically surprise attack the tribe of Qudaa, the tribe of Qudaa, and it's very interesting that Amr was given a position of leadership even though he was only three months old. Three months meaning Muslim. Because you judge your Islam like this. He is literally three months in his, into his Islam. And perhaps, perhaps, our Prophet is wanting to test him. Wanting to see the future potential. And this is kind of demonstrated that when Amr comes to him, he gazes at him up and down. This is what the hadith says. That he looked at him up and down. And when a, when a person usually does this, you're trying to assess. And the Prophet wanted to test his character and judge whether he is worthy of bigger and, and, and you know, more tasks than this. And this is in fact the, 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 the role of a true leader. Is that you give, and not just a leader, not just a leader in the political sense. Even us with our children, us in our workforces. We test people with a little bit, see if they pass, then we give them a bigger one. And this is our Prophet testing Amr with... Not a major battle. He didn't hand him, you know, the conquest of Mecca. He handed him that is Salasil, which is a relatively, yani not one of the big ones. 300 people under his command. And Amr went with these 300. And even if Amr was a new Muslim, he was not a new military general. He had a, the upbringing of a soldier. His father was the chieftain. He has been trained. Uh, like Khalid ibn Walid and others, there are, as we, as we had said, Khalid and Amr were close friends and of a similar age. So they're relatively on the younger side now. Um, I would venture, I'll have to look at about venture in their late 20s at this stage. So uh, Amr ibn al-As is given this leadership and he is told to go to Qudaa and it was in the winter. It was in the winter when this incident occurred. So he traveled only at night. He did not travel in the daytime in order to make sure that the enemy didn't hear of his coming. And at night, even though it was freezing cold, he refused to allow 
the army to light a fire throughout the entire trip. So much so that they complained and they grumbled. And Amr said to them, if you light a fire, I will push you into it. No fires to be lit. And when they eventually returned, they complained to the Prophet that Ya Rasulullah, he refused to allow us to light a fire. And Amr explained, this is when they returned back. And he said, O Messenger of Allah, our quantity was limited. 300 people compared to the massive tribe of Qudaa. And I didn't want the tribe to see how small we were. We traveled only in the dark and we basically hid ourselves from them. I didn't want anybody to see how small our tribe or our quantity was. So he took some very harsh precautions and he eventually uh, got to the outskirts of the tribe of Qudaa and he then realized that 300 was not enough for an attack. So he withdrew and he sent a message to the Prophet ﷺ, we need more men. 300 is not enough. So the Prophet ﷺ sent reinforcement of 200 to make it 500. And in this 200 reinforcement were Abu Bakr and Umar and other major companions. And in charge of this reinforcement was the famous companion Abu Ubaidah Amir ibn al-Jarrah. Abu Ubaidah, one of the elite of the Sahaba as we know, one of the, the ten, one of the big of the Sahaba. Abu Ubaidah Amr ibn Jarrah is told to be the commander of this reinforcement. And the Prophet says to Abu Ubaidah, when you get to your companion, meaning Amr, make sure the two of you agree and do not disagree. Whatever you do, make sure you agree and don't disagree. When the reinforcements arrived, it was time for the Salah. And when the Iqamah was called, Abu Ubaidah goes forward to lead. Now the leader of the Salah is the leader of the army. It's not like in our times when anybody is just becomes no. And the, 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 the Imam of the Salah was the Imam of the Muslims. And in early Islam as well. In early Islam as well. It was the Khalifa who always led the Salah. And who gave the khutbas. There was the symbolism that the Imam is the leader in every sense and not just for Salah. And that symbolism was there for early Islam. The Umayyad Khulafa gave their own khutbas. The Umayyad Khulafa, they gave their khutbas and they led the Salah. It was only later on with the decline of the Ummah that even the Khalifa then basically was not even qualified to give the khutbah. Yani in our times we seek Allah's refuge if a ruler gives a khutbah. Um, but uh, the point being that Abu Ubaidah went forward. Amr said, no, you are reinforcements. I am the leader. And some tension broke out. Because in the end of the day, Abu Ubaidah is senior in every sense. In terms of Islam, in terms of Quran, in terms of everything. I mean, really, Amr is three months old, right? But Amr said no. I asked for reinforcements, right? You are in charge of the reinforcements, but I'm in charge of the army. And some of the Sahaba on the side of Abu Ubaidah said that Abu Ubaidah is our Amir. And you might be the Amir of those people, the 300, but Abu Ubaidah is our Amir. And some tensions broke out. And Abu Ubaidah then agreed to step down and said, Ya Amr, the Prophet said to me, the last thing that he said, make sure the two of you agree and do not disagree. So even if you will disobey me, I will not disobey you so that we can end up agreeing. If you're not going to listen to me, that okay, I, I think I should be the leader, khalas, I will natanazir, I will step down and you can become the, uh, and, and you can and I will obey you. And therefore he allowed Amr to lead the salah and then therefore to lead the army uh, after him. Because Abu Ubaidah had assumed that he would be the leader now. Right? Now that he's there, he's a senior one, he should take over. Amr did not. And Amr insisted that he would be. And so Abu Ubaidah gave that position up and he allowed Amr to be the leader. Now this incident, uh, and again, this is why we discuss these Dhatu Salasil. Dhatu Salasil, for us at this basic level, we don't know about Qudaa, we don't know where they were. I'm talking about at this basic level. The advanced scholars know this. But for us in this masjid here, it's just a tribe and another. These incidents are what we derive benefits and lessons from. And one of the things that we, uh, so this incident, one of the things we can derive from it is the Sahaba are humans. We have to break this image of the Sahaba being superhuman. The Sahaba are humans, and as humans they battle the same emotions that we battle. 
And there are tensions that Abu Ubaidah feels, I am more qualified than you. And Amr says, no, the Prophet put me in charge. And in, in a sense, both of them are right in what they're saying. Correct? Right? But even though they are humans, they are the best of generations of humans. And therefore, the role model that we gain is to look at how they resolve this conflict and tension. That Abu Ubaidah agreed to basically step down. And this he stepped on his own ego. Who amongst us? Wallahi, imagine this. This man is a new Muslim. Three months. He's younger than him by at least a decade. Abu Ubaidah has been at Badr and at Uhud. He has been an early Muslim. He's one of the ten. He's this, he's that. He's done so much. And quite literally, a younger, much younger man, who's a brand new Muslim, and there's no doubt the quantity of Quran he's memorized. How much could he have memorized? There's no doubt his tilawah, there's no doubt his fiqh cannot be compared. Yet, and Amr in the end of the day, and but he was the son of his father, and that lineage really has in it, and, and this is a reality, this is not meant to be a astaghfirullah, astaghfirullah, anything negative, but they had in their blood power. And it's natural that when you have the power, you act as if you have the power. It's natural, there's nothing wrong with this, right? Sons of kings and queens and whatnot, even when the kingdom goes away, they still act royal. Isn't this the case, right? To this day, you know, the dynasties that are gone, you know, their descendants and exile still call themselves royal highness and royal this and that, and they act like this, right? The dynasties that no longer exist of all of the Muslim and non-Muslim lands, to this day, they have the blood of royalty in them. Now, Amr had that upbringing, and he has it in him, and this is why he became the politician that he became. And again, radiallahu anhu, we don't say this in a negative way. So he insisted, I am the leader. And Abu Ubaidah stepped on his own ego, swallowed his own pride. And wallahi, this shows that Abu Ubaidah was the better of the two in Iman and Taqwa, and we do not deny this. With all respect to Amr, Abu Ubaidah was the senior. But because he was the senior, what, is the, what did he do? He sacrificed his personal ego for the sake of what? Unity. And wallahi, what a lesson for us. What a lesson for us. This is true leadership. This is true leadership. To step down for the sake of unity in the community. And he said, okay, even if you're not going to follow me then, in order not to disobey Rasulullah, I will follow you, Sallallahu Right? That's what you call Iman, and that's what you call leadership. Our Prophet told us to agree, well one of us has to compromise. If you're not going to compromise, basically, I will compromise for the sake of the Prophet wasallam. And therefore, uh, we benefit here again, as we said, the true leadership is not necessarily about actually being in charge. True leadership is sacrificing for the community. Also, we gain another interesting point here, that in the army of Abu Ubaidah, was people like Abu Bakr and Umar. And by unanimous consensus, Abu Bakr and Umar are better than Abu Ubaidah in, uh, in, in terms of taqwa, in terms of seniority, in terms of ranking. Yet Abu Ubaidah is put in charge. And this shows us that to be put in charge, you don't have to be the single most muttaqi person. It's okay to put somebody in charge and he's not the single best person. And the technical term is Imamatul Mafduli al Fadil, which means the leadership of the one who's not as good over the one who is better than him. And this is one of the differences between us and between some of the Shi'i groups. That they say the Imam or the leader has to be the best person in the whole world. And we say that's impossible and historically not the case. And there are many instances to demonstrate. It is okay for a leader not to be the very best person. He can be mafdul and the one beneath him is fadl. Because Abu Ubaidah is not the best compared to Abu Bakr. Yet he is the one in charge over Abu Bakr. One could also say that perhaps Abu Ubaidah was put in charge because of military reasons. To have the most iman is not necessarily the most qualified in every aspect. You can be muttaqi, but that doesn't mean you're the best tactician. You're the best military planner. And perhaps Abu Ubaidah was put in for these reasons. In any case, so... Abu Ubaidah agrees to step down, Amr takes charge, and Amr coordinates an attack against the tribe of Qudaa. We don't have any real details because there was no major battle. When the tribe of Qudaa saw 500 people attacking them, complete surprise. They basically dropped everything and fled, and they ran. And so therefore, uh, the Muslims did not conquer the entire tribe, but 
the, because it was too large, the tribe of Qudara was too large, but it was a victory in the sense that the, the message was sent, don't mess with us. And fear was put in the hearts of Qudara, and as the Prophet predicted, much Ghanima was conquered. Obviously when the tribe leaves, there's so much property, so much possessions left behind in fulfillment of what the Prophet had said. So there was no major uh, uh, casualties. It was basically a, a major victory financially and no major casualties for the Muslims. Exactly as the Prophet said, you shall be safe and Allah will give you much war booty and that's exactly what happened. Now in the books of hadith we find an incident here that Amr narrates and we don't know exactly when it happened but it's a fiqh incident and it happened in this ghazwa and it's an embarrassing incident of Amr but he's not embarrassed to mention it to us because there's much fiqh in it and he says that on one of the nights of that salasil I had a wet dream I woke up in the state of Janaba right on one of the nights of that salasil I became Junub and they're in the middle of the desert it is freezing cold, it's the winter time. And Amr said, I was worried if I take a ghusl, I will perish, kill myself in this cold weather to take my clothes off and to, you know, uh, take a bath. And the desert cold, by the way, is very different. The desert cold, it's, it's a very different type of cold. The wind is, I mean, I've only experienced it a few times, and wallahi, it's different type. I've lived in Connecticut, which is very cold in its own way. But that cold is the cold of the snow. And it's cold. But the desert cold, I don't know how to explain it, but they say it like hits the bones. It gets to the bones. And it really does. It's a very different type of cold. And they're in the middle of the desert, no protection. And Amr says, I got worried if I take a bath, it will basically, I'll freeze to death or I'll perish. So I did tayammum. And I led Fajr with my companions. Because he's the Imam. When we returned, they complained to the Prophet. So they already have a long list of complaints about Amr. He did this, he did that, he did this, he did that. Right? One of the things they said was that Amr led us in the state of Janaba. This is what they told the Prophet. He prayed in the state of Janaba. And he was our Imam. So the Prophet called him and said, Did you lead them in the state of Janaba? Now this shows us whenever you hear information, Verify. Verify. There's always two sides of the story. Right? So they complained. And from their perspective, they have water. They got plenty of water. Amr refuses to take a bath. And he insists on leading them in Fajr. So they're very angry. And they go and complain to the Prophet So he calls him and says, Ya Amr, asallayta bihim wa anta junub? Is, is it true? That you led them in salah and you were in a state of janaba, And so Amr said that, O Messenger of Allah, I heard Allah say, meaning the, uh, I, I read in the Quran, I heard Allah say uh, that, O you who believe, um, uh, Do not kill yourselves, for verily Allah is very merciful to you. And I was worried that if I took a bath, I would end up killing myself. So therefore I did tayammum and I didn't take a bath. And so Amr says, He laughed at my explanation and didn't say anything to rebuke me. And this is a fiqh incident. It's not a, th a major theological point, but it shows us many things. Uh, and this took place, uh, sorry, he mentions clearly in one of the nights, I, I said this, in the one of the nights of that to Salasil. He said this, so that's why I'm mentioning it here. This is in the books of Hadith. And he says, in one of the nights of that to Salasil, uh, you know, this happened to me. Now, this shows us many things. Uh, firstly, tayammum takes the place of ghusl by unanimous consensus. Tayammum takes the place of ghusl, not just wudu. Secondly, it is allowed to perform tayammum even while water is present, if there is a legitimate reason. Now before this point in time, the only time the Sahaba had performed tayammum was when they didn't have water. And we have the hadith of Ammar and the hadith of Ali and others. Incidents took place, they didn't have water and they performed tayammum. This is the first time in the seerah, while the Prophet is alive, that the Sahaba have water, or at least one Sahabi has water. And he refuses to use the water and he does tayammum intentionally leaving the water. That's why this is an interesting point here. right? And this shows us therefore that 
tayammum can be performed in the presence of water if there is a legitimate reason. What is a legitimate reason? There are two that generally are mentioned in the books of fiqh. Number one is the Amr's scenario. It's freezing cold and uh, you know you are in, the, in that circumstances that it would really be harmful to perform water. You die of pneumonia or whatever else. Or number two, they say if you have a skin ailment that the water cannot touch it. Right? These are the two main reasons that are given. That you have a surplus of water. We're not talking about you only have a bottle and that's you have to drink it. We're not talking about, no, you have water but you cannot use it. So this shows you're allowed to do tayammum. This incident also demonstrates for us that the Sahaba derived Islamic laws through their own reasoning even when the Prophet is alive. In other words, they did ijtihad even when the Prophet is alive. And Ijtihad has always been how you derive Islamic laws that are not explicit. This also shows us that the one who does tayammum is not in any way diminished in his capability to become the imam. So if there are two people, one of them has wudu and the other one does tayammum, we will not care in deciding who is the imam, whether the person did real wudu or not. It doesn't matter. The both of them are considered to be equivalent and equal. And we will look at whose Qur'an is better and who's more qualified to be the Imam. So the fact that Amr did tayammum did not disqualify him from being Imam when the rest of the Sahaba are doing wudu. Right? We also gain over here that ijtihad or deriving Islamic laws takes into account real life situations and scenarios. And by this I mean that here we have Amr faced with a text, and that text, Surah Al-Ma'i, the text I'm talking about, that when you are Junub, take a bath. This is an explicit command. Yet Amr understands that, look, this command has to have certain leeway in the circumstance I'm in. He's not, what we would say, a die-hard literalist. I have to apply the verse even if I'm going to die. And he understands that, look, this verse cannot possibly be applicable to me right now because it will lead to my destruction and death. And there is a verse in the Quran that can be used to justify my reinterpreting the verse of Ma'idah so as not to cause my destruction and death. Is that clear? Right? In other words, let me phrase it even more bluntly. There is always, there has always been and there always will be a tension between those who are ultra-literalist on one side. The text says it, end of story. Versus those who say, look, maybe the text needs to be understood in light of the circumstance we're in. And this tension has been from the time of the Sahaba. Some of the Sahaba were more literal and some of them were more open to like, well, okay, that is the text, but sometimes we need to see when we can apply it. And of course, this tension exists in our times in much more extreme than it existed amongst the Sahaba and there's no easy solution in this regard and no doubt our religion takes into account our situation and scenario and we are required to be faithful to the text and balancing the two is always a delicate act there's no easy solution but I just wanted to point out here is Amr and he knows the commandment of Allah about doing Tahara uh, and yet he understands look this can't possibly apply right now because of a real situation or scenario that he is in. In any case uh, this is the, the battle of Dhatus Salasil. What was the effect of this battle? This battle effectively conquered the north at least from a PR perspective. Not militarily i.e. the north, north, when I say north I mean what? Northern Arabia. Northern Arabia was never a threat after this. The Ghassanis have been terrified after Mu'tah, right? They will go once more to Tabuk, the Battle of Tabuk, to the actual Romans, and the Romans never showed up, as we will get to in that point in time. And after this battle, really, Northern Arabia, by and large, has become safe. There, was, there is no major threat from Northern Arabia, and in fact, a number of tribes accepted Islam, and uh, there is an alliance formed in Northern Arabia. And one final incident that occurred, not in that to Salasid, but in one of the smaller battles that took place right before the conquest of Mecca, and no need to mention tribe names and whatnot, because honestly, there's very little benefit for us in confusing you with all of this type of stuff, but 
just one incident occurred in one of the other battles, not that to Salasil, in which Allah revealed a verse in the Quran. So it's interesting to read this verse in context of this incident. And that is that in a very small expedition, uh, the Prophet sent a small group of Sahaba to attack uh, uh, one of the tribes that was threatening the Muslims. And they passed by a person by the name of Amir ibn al-Atbat al-Ashja'i. Amir ibn al-Atbat al-Ashja'i. And Amir was a secret Muslim, i.e. his tribe was not a Muslim, he had converted. And so when he saw the Muslims, he became happy and he said, Assalamu alaikum. And Assalamu alaikum is the sign of being a Muslim. And in the contingent of the Prophet ﷺ, there was a man who had a personal problem with Amir from the days of Jahiliyyah. And he had a vendetta from the days of Jahiliyyah. What it is, we don't know. But there's lots of petty things within the Dizaliyah. And his name was Muhallim. Muhallim ibn Juthama. A very complicated name. Muhallim ibn Juthama. So Muhallim, the rest of the Sahaba, when he said, Assalamu alaikum, this is a sign of Islam. So they welcomed him, they put their arms down, everything. Muhallim refused to accept his Islam. And he said, you are not a Muslim. And he single-handedly attacked him and killed him. And took his belongings as War booty, basically. With the pretext, what was his point? Of course, nobody knew what is in his heart until Allah revealed it. But he said, he's just saying this. He's not a real Muslim. He's just pretending to be a Muslim. And when the news reached the Prophet ﷺ, Allah revealed in the Quran, Surah An-Nisa, verse 94. Surah An-Nisa, verse 94. That, Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu, that all you who believe, if you are traveling in the way of Allah, فتبينوا, verify. And do not say to the one who says salam to you, you are not a believer. Because you want some money of this world. So Allah exposed the niyyah of Muhallim. Allah exposed the niyyah in this verse in the Quran. You're not doing this for Iman. You're doing this because you had a vendetta and you wanted his belongings. And interesting thing happened here is that this murder, because it is a murder, it led to a huge dispute between the two tribes. Obviously, the tribe of Muhallib and the tribe of Amir. Huge dispute. And eventually, they both accept Islam. And after the battle of uh, Hunayn, they both come to the process of the chieftains and they demand that this murder be resolved. The murder of Amir. And the both of them are very angry in this regard. And it causes a lot of tension. And the process has to calm them down. We'll get to that story when we get to it. Uh, and I will quiz you then. And I'm sure every one of you will forget. But I'll quiz you then when we get to it about this incident. And uh, the process had to calm the both of them down. And he agreed to pay 100 camels on his behalf. On his own behalf. Because in the end of the day, he's the leader. And he sent Muhallib. Right? So he has to take responsibility. So he calmed them down. He gave a hundred uh, camels. And the tribe of uh, Muhallim, uh, Muhallim, the tribe of Muhallim said to the Prophet why don't you ask Allah to forgive him? And one of the very few times in his life, the Prophet refused. He refused because of Muhallim's character, because of what was in his heart. And it is said that after he said this, within a few days, Muhallim died. Ibn Ishaq mentions the story. That we, after a few days, Muhallim died. And when his tribesmen buried him, the next morning they found him on top of the ground with his face down. So they dug another hole and they buried him again. The next morning again, the same thing. They did it again, the next morning again. Then the tribe basically put him between, uh, they found a valley basically, and they left his body in the valley and they went on the top and they just threw stones to cover up his body while he's not actually buried. Right, so they just threw stones to just cover up the body. And the Prophet ﷺ said something very profound. He said, Verily, the earth covers up people worse than him. His crime wasn't the worst. The earth covers up people worse than him. But Allah wanted to warn you through him by showing you the sanctity of life between you. This is a beautiful, beautiful point. The earth covers up people worse than Muhallim. Muhallim didn't do the biggest crime in humanity. 
But Allah wanted to teach you a lesson. The sanctity of human life. That you are just saying, oh, he's not a Muslim. And Allah knows what was in your heart. And you just wanted your vendetta and you wanted the money. And this is one of the few times when the Prophet did not even ask Allah to forgive because of any for sure any Allah told him about his internal uh, character about Muhallim. Uh, these are the major incidents before uh, the thing that leads to the conquest of Mecca and the time is up and I don't want to start uh, the few incident that or the one incident that leads to the actual conquest inshallah next Wednesday we will begin the actual uh, conquest of Mecca and it will take probably around two or three uh, weeks bi ta'ala